welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, we'll be tackling some of uh, Jefferson's miscellaneous writings as collected in the Library of America. There's seven or eight different documents uh, ranging through all sorts of different um, issues. Most of them are not political, uh, which is a good thing. We've been reading a lot of Jefferson's political writings, and this gives us a chance to really jump into some of his uh, this is his other interests and, and some of the other things he achieved. Most of these things uh, weren't really published, or if they were published, maybe they're not really well known. So I think one reason you may want to glance at this section is to come across some documents you may have not have heard of before or knew that Jefferson had written. Now there's just nine documents. I'm not going to go through maybe every one in detail. I'm just going to kind of let you know what's, what's here and give you some of my general thoughts on, on these. The first is, is rather fun. It's uh, the reply to the representatives of affairs in America by British newspapers. It was published in 1784, and essentially it's Jefferson trolling the British newspapers, which, you know, in the response to the defeat of the United States, seemed to be very, if not hostile to, to the United States, just making the United States look a little bit wild and, and crazy. And one event that they really uh, grappled with, it seems, was the mutiny. This, this mutiny in the army, in the Continental Army, took place late in the war, I think after most of the fighting was done, and it was mostly a protest over, over wages not being paid. And of course, the, the U.S. government at the time had a real difficulty paying bills, and, the, and that's one reason the Constitution eventually had to be adopted, was to strengthen the, the tax, taxation powers of, of the government. But uh, now, what I think is there's a really interesting space here in the years between the peace and the French Revolution where there's kind of just the American Revolution to look at, right? After the French Revolution, you're going to have like the Burkean response where they would say, well, they, the American Revolution was good because it was kind of built on the traditions of British liberties, inherited rights, and the French Revolution was, you know, the French didn't have those inherited rights, so they're kind of leaping uh, too far ahead, too radical, right? Um, but I'd be interested to know more about how the British newspapers are looking at the Americans in these early years, looking at that, how they're struggling to create a government and all that, especially in, you know, things like Cushay's Rebellion or something like that. So anyways, both basically Jefferson is posing as an officer returning to Britain after serving in the war and coming to respect American institutions and, and society and explaining why why this mutiny took place and how it was a relatively peaceful mutiny and how it reflected actually the strength of the American system. So a really interesting little document that that kind of enters into a debate that I didn't even know was going on or a conversation that I didn't know was going on. And that was between the newspapers in, in Britain and, and the United States. And I just love seeing these kind of what we all rec what we kind of affiliate with uh, modern internet culture, you know in these older writings. We saw that a lot, I think, in Thomas Paine's, even the crisis letters, where there was a lot of trolling going on of, of British conversations. And here we see Jefferson engage in the same act. That actually be a kind of an interesting project for someone to research, right? Like trolling in, in the 18th century or something. The next document is uh, kind of, it reminded me a bit of notes from the state of Virginia in that it's a response to questions by a man named Demeneur. I'm not quite sure who he is, but he apparently he's putting together this Encyclopedia Methodique in France, and there was a bunch of questions asked to Jefferson about the United States. And this was, this came, this was written in 1786. And so the first part of this document that we have collected here are some of his responses about the nature of the Confederation government. 
Then we have some responses to what is actually published in the manuscript, or what was written in the manuscript that he prepared. Maybe some corrections, some advice, um, and then a, like a personal personal letter. So the first part, the, this is right right before the right when the Constitution Convention is going on, right in 1786. So it's a little bit early. This is January. So later that summer there'd be the Constitutional Convention. So the Constitution the Constitution is already you know, on its way. But Jefferson here is still very much a defender of the Confederation government. And he, you know, he would eventually support the Constitution with some reservations. He was, of course, in France when this took place. And he probably, yeah, I guess he would have been writing this maybe even in, in France. Um, but he, he starts out saying the Confederation is a wonderful, perfect instrument considering the circumstances under which it was formed. Uh, and he has other defenses of it. Um, uh, even like the concern that there'd be conflicts between the states over, you know, maybe tariff walls or even violence between the states. And he thinks basically the, the institution is strong enough to, to um, deal with those things. However, this was a major reason, these kind of questions and concerns was a major reason why the people who wrote the Constitution thought it was so necessary to have a stronger federal government and a stronger glue between the states. But Jefferson's still a believer here in the Confederation. I think that's notable. So that's mostly what got collected here. Obviously, this was a much longer document. Um, maybe it's as long as something like Notes from the State of Virginia, but this is just a small extract of, of that text. Uh, we also have some of his responses to the manuscript. So, so it seems Jefferson read the manuscript and, and gave some corrections. And there's some interesting stuff here on, on Jefferson's views on indentured servitude, which apparently was a, an entry in, the, in this encyclopedia. He kind of white, or maybe that's the wrong term, but whitewashes the severity of indentured servitude. Obviously, it was not slavery. People, you know, signed contracts. They did this willingly to a degree, although maybe they were driven by poverty to enter into these agreements. But Jefferson goes so far as to say, so mild was this kind of servitude that it was very frequent for foreigners who carried to America money enough not only to pay their passage, but to buy themselves a farm. It was common, I say, for them to indent themselves to a master for three years for a certain sum of money with a view to learn the husbandry of the country. I will here make a general observation. Um, so desirous are the poor of Europe to get out to America that they may better their condition that being unable to pay their passage, they would agree to serve two or three years on their actual arrival there rather than not go, end quote. Now, of course, the second part is, is true. People couldn't pay passage did. The other part that people would just willingly indenture themselves to learn a craft, you know, it, it's, it reminds me a bit of how people talk about like unpaid internships these days. Right? It's like, oh, people are so grateful to have this job in this corporation to build up their resume and to learn skills and make connections. But really, it's just a, a cover for straight-up exploitation. The next document we have is fairly long. It's almost 30 pages. It's thoughts on English prose, prosody. Basically, it's his, it's a little essay he wrote on, on English verse. And uh, given the loftiness of the topic and the, the, you know, it's a rather short glance at it, I, I, I kind of actually struggle to find a real thesis here. It's just various commentary on different aspects of it. It's very technical and I don't really understand poetry enough. I'm starting to try to read poetry. It was kind of one of my New Year's resolutions. And I don't quite know how to talk about poetry on this podcast, um, but I was like reading a lot of Robert Frost over Spring Festival. Um, you know, I don't have the background to really comment on the way Jefferson here talks about it, where he looks at, really looks at the, 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 the syllables, the, the timber of it, the, 
the, the phrasing of, of, of it. You know, I look at things more thematically, as you probably know. So it's a little bit beyond me to, to say too much about this particular, particular document. But it's enough to say that Jefferson was a well-educated person who, who, you know, who knew this stuff. And when we look at his letters, we, we actually get a glimpse when he, you know, when he gives advice on how to like what books to read for one's education. It's, it's, kind of, it's a lot of fun. Um, certainly he knew a lot. He didn't write many books. He only wrote one, but uh, very, very well educated and knowledgeable in many fields. And this is just more evidence to that. But maybe someone who's a, a scholar or a, an expert on poetry or experience on that can, can help me figure out what exactly he's trying to say about English poetry. But I will give you what he says in the introduction, uh, justifying this text. He says, I ended by discovering that you were right in denying that proposition. Oh, sorry, I'll, I'll, I have to step back a, a sentence. I began with the design of converti converting you to my opinion that the arrangement of long and short syllables into regular feet constituted the harmony of English verse. I ended by discovering that you were right in denying that proposition. The next object was to find the real circumstance which gives harmony to English poetry and laws to those who make it. I present you with the results. It's a tribute due to your friendship." End quote. So that's the... the his justification for this. So apparently he's changed his mind about where the beauty in the English verse comes from. This was also written in 1786 to a Frenchman and is probably is another one of the documents he wrote while, while dwelling in France. Now his travel journals, that's what's next. That's the next document we have, a tour of some of the gardens of England and different tours he went on. Um, these the dates on these are varied. I, I think he was working on these for quite a while. Um, but during his time in Europe, he, he produced these, these travel logs, and a lot of them is detailed stuff. So again, it's not really, it's not like reading, I guess, like Mark Twain's travel logs, where he always has kind of agenda and a pithy observations to make about things. This is a much more technical and even scientific looking at English gardens, French architecture, even some German architectures talked about. Um, uh, various settings that you just traveled through. So they're, they're rather pleasant to to skim through, but to be honest, I didn't take the closest line-for-line line reading of these. Um, they are very technical. He even draws. I mean, one nice thing about this is we get some of Jefferson's drawings uh, actually reproduced here. So if if you want to see his drawings, which I assume they're his drawings or reproductions of his drawings, um, take a look at that. So travel journals. Again, this is just a small selection of, I think, of a bigger, bigger, document that could have been chosen, you know, picked from. And maybe if you can get our hands on the whole thing, maybe there's more to, to say about it. Just, we, we, we again, just get the eye, we get a window into a very, very curious person, someone with a very scientific uh, perspective on life, someone with, with very keen observation skills, or at least very meticulous in how we observe things. So next we have the anise. A-N-A-S. I'm not even sure what that's short for. There's a period after it, so short for or something, but this is, it's a very, I guess, a poor man's memoirs. Um, they're dated from 1791 to 1806, and we begin with an introduction to the Annis, which is uh, fairly lengthy. So he basically took all his like papers from his time as Secretary of State and the first term of his presidency, at least until 1806, and then bound them together into three um, volumes and then threw on like an introduction on top of it. So in that first introduction, we get his kind of uh, 
kind of reflections on his return to America, his becoming the secondary state under Washington, his feelings about kind of the party politics he got thrown into. And he's very, um, uh, certainly not objective at this point. He's definitely, he, he thought the turn that the country was taking under Washington, pretty great Hamilton, was, was the wrong turn. Uh, he writes, politics were the chief topic and a preference of kingly over Republican government was evidently the favorite sentiment. As a, an apostate, I could not be, nor yet a hypocrite, and I found myself for the most part the only advocate on the Republican side of the question, unless among the guests there chanced to be some member of that party from the legislative houses. Hamilton's financial system had then passed. It had two objects. First, as a puzzle to exclude popular understanding and inquiry. Secondly, as a machine for the corruption of the legislature, for he avowed the opinion that man could be governed by one of two motives only, force or interest, end quote. Uh, very, very harsh uh, language for the, the Hamiltonian um, program, you know, the National Bank and all, which he sees here just as a, as a, as a means to corrupt the legislature. Um, and this introduction is, is, is kind of in that, that tone throughout it. But I will say he, 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 he reserves uh, judgment on Washington. And I mean, Washington is a bit out, you know, beyond, beyond criticism. And you know, he says of him, he does say that he was getting kind of old towards the end now, which I think is kind of funny. He says, his memory was already essentially impaired by age. The firm tone of his mind for which he had been remarkable was beginning to relax. Its energy was abated. A listless of labor, a desire for tranquility had crept on him and a willingness to let others act and even think for him, end quote. And I don't know if this is a true reflection of, of Washington's mind. I'd have to look at a biography of Washington to, to know that. But it, it might be Jefferson's, you know, kind of forgiving Washington for, you know, leading this administration in directions that he did not approve of. Now, after that introduction, we... We just get a few selections from this, this, this collection, um, some from 1792, 1793, and then some, just a handful from, I think, 1806 towards the end, which really do with, the, I think, the Burr um, incident, the Burr conspiracy. And actually, I don't think I mentioned it as one of his speeches. One of the speeches that are collected here is his report to Congress on, on the Burr conspiracy. Um, if you're interested in that, that's here as well. Um, but I think most most interesting were his his reports, you know, like uh, about his conversations with the president. You know, I was thinking, who is it that that Comey, right? During you know, writing down the notes of the memoir. You know, writing down the notes of every meeting he had with with Trump. Right here we have Jefferson writing down his notes day to day of his different meetings with 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 George Washington. Now, most of it is just humorous and, and kind of fun to read, but there are a few serious moments, which, which again, kind of speak to the party politics that, that Jefferson was ensconced in, in during his time as Secretary of State. He writes, He said he believed the views of the Republican Party were perfectly pure, but when men put a machine into motion, it is impossible for them to stop it exactly where it would choose or to say where it will stop. That the cons constant we have is an excellent one if we can keep it where it is that it was indeed supposed that supposed there was a party disposed to change it into a monarchical form but that he could conscientiously declare there was not a man in the united states who would set his face more decidedly against it than himself here I'm, here i interrupted him by saying no rational man in the u.s suspects you of any other disposition but there does not pass a week in which we cannot prove 
declarations dropping from the monarchical party that our government is good for nothing. It is milk and water thing which cannot support itself. We must knock it down and set up something of more energy. He said that if this was the case, he thought it proof of their insanity, for that the Republican spirit of the Union was so manifest and so solid that this was astonishing how any of them could expect to move them. Quote. Now, the grammar here is a bit, or the writing here is a bit shorthand, and, and that's why I fumbled over some of the words, but because I wasn't quite sure what, the, what they were. There are a lot of them are abbreviated. But nevertheless, what the, the key conversation here is Jefferson's concerned about essentially a monarchical conspiracy within the Federalist faction to, to transform the United States into a monarchy. And I, I suppose there were some people who had that nostalgia or thought a monarchy would be, be better. And I, I know that was discussed a little bit in the convention, but rejected. I certainly think Jefferson here is, is, is protesting a bit too strongly um, about his fears of this. And, and I think Washington is probably right uh, in his observation that that's not really a, a serious threat and that he will stand against that. But um, And then there's some more here with talking about his basic, his feeling of, of the need to have support and solidarity with France during their revolution. To some degree, I mean, I certainly didn't think of joining the war. He didn't think that would be a good idea, but he did think of France as allies. And that was, of course, something he pushed as Secretary of State, as we saw in earlier episodes. Um, and then we have the memoirs of his conversation with Aaron Burr from 1804, which if you're interested in the Burr conspiracy, which I'm not really, uh, you'll, you'll enjoy those little sections. I just kind of glanced at them. Now, some of the later documents here, and there's just a handful. One is called a Memorandum, Services to My Country. And it was written about 1800, but I guess we don't have the exact date. And this is kind of a listing of his accomplishments up to that point. And this is before he becomes president, right? So it, it, I, I don't think this was published. I don't get the sense it was published, but he's, you know, maybe he's thinking about retirement before he gets he enters into politics again or, or whatever, but he's, or maybe he is sort of thinking through what he's achieved before, um, you know, moving on to another phase of his, his career as president. But he, you know, he does, kind of list his achievements. And some of these things we have seen before, of course, the Declaration of Independence, the breaking up of the religious freedom, an act prohibiting the importation of slaves that of course did not pass in Virginia, but it was something he supported. Uh, it seems an act up on crimes and punishments, reform of crime and punishment. So all those legislative works we, we, we talked about before, uh, his, his, you know, his legislative achievements are really the focus of this document. So it's a nice little summary of what he was trying to do as a legislature in, in Virginia. Now, a document written in 1803 called a Memorandum, Rules of Etiquette, which I presume was a memo memorandum sent around through his administration while he was president. But here's what it says. In order to bring the members of society together in the first instance, the custom of the country has established that residents shall pay the first visit to strangers and among strangers first comers to later comers, foreign and domestic. The character of strangers ceasing after the first visits. To this rule, there's a single exception. Foreign ministers, from the necessity of making themselves known, pay the first visit to the ministers of their nation, which is returned. When brought together in a society, all are perfectly equal, whether foreign or domestic, titled or untitled, in or out of office." End quote. Now, I don't quite know the issue he's responding to, but he seems to be setting a, a central policy of how we deal with foreign dignitaries and foreign ministers on a principle of, of equality. But he's very clear here later in the document that 
title, status, rank, these things don't matter in that. So it doesn't matter if you're a duke or a king or you know, uh, some kind of noble title. That, that does not matter in the basic way we treat foreign dignitaries and foreign ministers. There's, there's a general presumption of equality. And then all that leaves is, is his epi epi epitaph, which of course has to be here. And I suppose this is the one place in the book to put it. Uh, because the rest of the book will be letters, but he did, of course, write his own gravestone, his own tombstone, um, where he basically only talks about three achievements in his life. The author of the Declaration of Independence, the author of the Statute of, Reli of, of Religious Freedom for Virginia, and the father of the University of Virginia. All three things we have talked about already in this series, and he even draws what his, his tomb, his, his gravestone should look like. Um, so... Um, yeah, that was, that was right before he died at some point, written in 1826. So that's all we have for these miscellaneous documents. They're, they're probably passable, I suppose, if you're, if, you're in a, if you're in a rush, but the travel logs are interesting. I think his response to this French writer of an encyclopedia is great. Uh, just the sense of how engaged Jefferson was in the French culture of the time and in the intellectual climate you know, helping educate people there about this new republic in the United States. There might be more significance there than, than even I alluded to. Uh, the Annas are certainly relevant, and, and I suppose if you're a Jefferson scholar, you're going to read the whole thing, right, all three volumes, to get a window into his uh, period of Secretary of State. We're just getting a, a, a glancing at these things, but um, uh, fun and useful documents, I think, all around. Now, looking ahead, what we're going to do is, is jump right into letters. And it'll probably take me, it's, it's huge. This letters could be one whole volume, Library of America volume. This volume is 1,500 pages long, and, and we're, at, we're on page 700. So I'm going to do probably six or seven episodes on the, on the letters. The first chunk I'm going to look at, and there's a lot of them, will be through 1785. So there's a few juvenile letters. There's a, a few surrounding the Revolutionary War period, but mostly the letters we're going to focus on were written in uh, 1783, 1784, 1785. That's just where the bulk of them are. So we're going to be paying attention to who is who is who is who is he writing, the correspondences with people, and and the themes that he is exploring in these in these letters. Uh, obviously, he wrote many more letters, but these were chosen by the editor. Uh, Merrill Peterson, by the way, was the editor of this. They were chosen for their significant uh, in Jefferson's life or significant in his thought and his ideas. So I, I'm not, you know, we're not going to have time and it's going to be kind of boring for me to go through every single one of these documents, but I'm going to highlight a few. I think that's my, my approach going to be. Uh, it's just, just highlight a few of these, these letters that I think really interested me and really, really stuck out and, and try to look for patterns and themes in his life in different periods. So our first um, jump into his letters will be from his first letter that we have here, written in 1760, and when he was 16 years old, to uh, the letters he wrote in 1785. Uh, and we'll see how it goes. So I'm looking forward to talking about these letters with you next time. Um, but for now, let me know what you think about these miscellaneous documents, if you read any of them, if you've come across any of them in your own studies or, or thoughts about um, Thomas Jefferson or American history, please let me know. Um, uh, so um, I'll see you next time. Thanks as always for listening.